Okie dokie. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello dear friends, welcome back to another episode of your favorite editing podcast, Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. Thank you for joining me, Paddy Bird, for another dive into this beautiful art form of ours. Now, I'm really excited this week because we've got another first on the show. We do have a guest this week, but this is the first time we have a guest on the show that is not an editor. I'll explain a bit more after I update you on all the latest Inside the Edit news. We're just a week away from the one and only sale we do all year. Yes, it's that time of the year again. Black Friday is around the corner. If you'd like to get 50% off the world's most in-depth creative editing course, then tune in to next week's show for the discount promo code. And we're also only a few weeks away from the launch of our new bootcamp shop. You'll be able to buy all of our four-hour in-depth masterclasses on the art of editing that we've run over the last few years at InsideTheEdit.com. We teach the art, not the software, in editing. As editors, we spend most of our careers talking to just one person, the director. And the quality of that communication and how we craft that relationship is often the difference between a successful or unsuccessful career. And so it makes perfect sense to try and understand the thought process of these important creative people in our lives. On this week's show, we are very lucky to have the hugely talented and award-winning documentary director, Sume Oram. Sume has directed films from everyone from the BBC to Netflix to HBO. And in this two-part interview, she gives us some hugely valuable insights into the mind of a top-flight director and the fruitful relationship she has with her editors. But it's also more than that. We have so many members of the Inside the Edit community who aren't just editors. They're directors, producers, and self-shooters as well. And so listening to Sume's journey upwards into the higher echelons of our industry and how she navigated the often difficult waters of directing is an inspiring message for us all. So sit back, relax, and enjoy an in-depth discussion with documentary director Sume Oram. Sume, thank you so much for joining us on Once Upon a Timeline. Thank you, Paddy. It's really exciting to be here. I'm really excited because this is the first time we've ever had a director, the enemy, not the enemy really, but 
I'm really excited to be, yeah, because I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts you've done w- within the edit and it's interesting to see that that point of view. And also I, I read edit suite stories and I like to see the other side, how the other side are thinking. Yes, exactly. How are we thinking? Editors are from Mars, you know, directors are from Venus or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, it's those that great, you know, relationship when you have a really good when it when it really works well, it's fantastic. I think that's it's one of the best parts of filmmaking is working with editors, working together to create the film that you hoped you could create and then to work together with both your visions because actually the editors, they bring so much to every film. And I love working mm. with editors and I love working with different editors and I always find they, they think differently and that's that's what we're always looking for. So that's an interesting question. Do, do, do you, you know, there's so many directors that they work with the same editor and over and over again or do you like working on different projects with different people? I think it depends on the film. I really think some films will work better with some editors, some with others. So I don't I don't think that every film I make will be with my preferred editor. Mm. And also these days, editors are like, they're so busy, they're so in demand. It's actually really difficult to time everything perfectly. So, you know, because when you finish an edit, you might then go filming on another project and then you might have your, you know, when you need an editor, not when they're free, because mm. usually you need an editor within a month and they might not be free for six months, nine months. And now editors get booked up a year in advance in docs. So sometimes you don't get to work with the editors you want but then you often get paired up with amazing people and then you learn from new editors so I think it's really nice to have this variation and another thing I'm finding is that because editors are getting booked up sometimes they book the editor before they book the director sometimes it's like that because production companies have editors they love working with and they want the best editor so they book them in advance and then next is the director nearly sometimes sometimes you know mm. so it's not always possible but hopefully if you know your project in advance you can book you can speak to the editor you like working with and hopefully it will work that's interesting actually because you don't feel that sense like if if a production company or a broadcaster loves working with an editor and they book them before you I guess some people might feel that it's been forced on someone. Is is that not the case then? Or are you just open to that? I mean, of course, when they when they book you, they go, look, we've booked this person. Are you happy to work with this person? And most of the time, you know, they have, if you've decided to work with that company, it's because they have a good sense. You like them. You mm. you respect their, their choices. And so far, it's been brilliant. You know, every time that I've arrived at a company and if the editor has been at least penciled in advance, I've always found it to be a brilliant choice. So, but in general, they do tend to call me and say, are there any editors you'd like to work with? And then they will call them. But because usually when I'm booked in for a project, it might be five months later Mm. that the edit starts, then sometimes they're booked or the timings don't work. So I think as a director... Um, you can try your best but you know I I've been paired with some great editors that otherwise if I'd just gone with the people I'd worked with in the past I wouldn't be meeting all these new people and for me it's brilliant and I I think I think in a lot I know I I listened to your the chameleon effect how the editors need to try and (laughs) you know behave differently I find that I want to try and make sure the editor gets to work the way they feel more comfortable working Mm. and I can adapt to them. I don't know if all the editors I worked with will say that I do that, but that's <laughs> what I tried to do at the beginning. It's interesting. I mean, we were talking about it a little bit beforehand, weren't we? It was like you were saying you'd listen to that episode, but actually a lot of that stuff is applicable to directing as well. And that's really interesting. Yeah. 
that I think we rely a lot on the editors to bring their energy, their creativity to the film. And, you know, we want them to be happy and creative and feel like they can try new things. Mm. So it's how to create that environment for them as well, you know, and how they like to work. You know, some people will like to do a long rough cut. Some people, some editors will prefer to put things on the timeline that they feel is what's going to stay, you know, and they don't do a long rough cut, you know, they just slowly add it to. So everyone works differently and I can't really, you know, we don't want to impose how we work onto them. And so it's interesting to see how they work, but sometimes they do, they do, they do say to me, how do you prefer to work? And mm. then if they, if they are that type of person, then I might say how I prefer to work. And then we kind of find that middle ground, but I've worked with some really brilliant editors and I, and I learn a lot from them. So it's nice to let them lead sometimes on their ideas. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I look back and I think probably the greatest things that I've learned or the things that I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. have always been from the relationship I have with the directors I've worked with over the years. I'm like, there's certain key directors. I mean, you're always learning from someone who you're working with at some point. But the key things that where I've personally grown creatively in terms of like long form narrative and stuff have always been through working with really, really talented directors. So it's really nice to hear you say that, actually. It's, it's like a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? We're learning from each other. Yeah, and I've been really lucky because I've been, um, I've worked with some really talented editors, you know, like the ones that are always on the, the list, everyone's list. So I've managed to work with them. So I've learned a lot from them and it's yeah. been really good. Fantastic. Well, we just, we already dived into it, but I'd love to, I always love hearing going back and sort of starting at the beginning, you know, and asking like, you know, what's your story? How did you get into television, into docs? And, and you know, what was your breaks and how did that work for you? I think I realized I wanted to be, you know, work in television, be a director when I was maybe 15. And wow. I grew up in Brazil and in Brazil, there's the, you know, in, in America, there's the sweet 16 parties. And in Brazil, there's, it's 15. So you have the 15 year old parties. And for my party, I got given a video camera for my birthday. And, and when I look back at that footage, I'm not even in any of the footage. It's just me filming all my friends. I don't think I'm <laughs> even in it at all. I never passed the camera to any, I was just filming. I just loved having a camera and filming my friends at my party. And then I, I remember at 16 or 17, I wrote to the BBC work experience and, and then I got a reply and it was a rejection. But I remember to be so happy to get a letter from the BBC, you know, because I was from Brazil, right? So in Brazil, we don't have the BBC. The BBC was always like the most amazing thing. And I got this letter and I remember being really happy that they had replied. And then um, I learned, lots of people said I should, I should just go to a good university and maybe not do film and media. I don't know if that's the right advice, um, mm. but I went with that advice. I got a good degree. What was it in, if you don't mind me asking? It was combined arts. So it was um, languages, literature, film, and business. Not oh, film, wow. like, you know, like Italian film, Spanish film, and business. But always during my, my breaks, I would always try and get internships or do work. And I finally got an internship at the BBC, at the Digital Channels Unit. And it was brilliant, you know, um, wow. I was a runner. I got to go on sets. It was about motorbikes, a show about motorbikes. And yeah, so it was amazing. And I, the day I walked through the BBC building, I was just so happy. Like, you know, I was just so happy to walk into that building and walk around and see people. And since then, I've just loved every minute of working in television. You walked through the doors and you went, I've made it. 
Yeah, I did. I did. And then 15 years later, I walked through the doors of the BBC as a director and I just was like... I've, I've made it again. I've made it again. I've really I made like, it now. Yeah, no, I really. And I still, you know, and when people started, were listening to things I said, I'd be like, wow, people are listening to me. That's incredible. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then, but I did work as a, a runner, a logger. I, feel, I thought being a logger was really useful because... I was at a really great company called Films of Record. And that was the second place that gave me work experience. And I would log the rushes of a very good director's um, film. And it was with the British Transport Police. And it was at the time when everything was a lot more actuality driven. Yeah. So I would sit there for days, weeks, just typing everything that was said. But what, what I heard is I heard how the director asked questions. I heard what the cameraman was doing, what shots they were getting. I literally watched all the rushes. And I think that's one of the best, the most useful things to do, just watching rushes and watching directors ask questions and watching the cutaways they get. And, you know, it's quite a slow process, but I thought logging was really great. So I did that for a long time. Wow, that's fascinating. That's like, I've never heard anyone come up through that kind of, or at least identify that part. I mean, because you're going to see good footage and bad footage and good interview technique and bad. I mean, it must, it's like a mini film school, I guess. That's amazing that you that you went through that process. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would think that, you know, because then I went from logger to researcher to assistant producer to DV director to director. So I did, I did the proper route, you know, like, yeah. Well, what I thought was the proper route. Of course, some people can go straight to film school and then have their short film in festivals and then just and immediately jump to director, which is brilliant. You know, I just didn't have that um that insight at the time that I could just go to film school and become a director. I, I don't know like who tells everyone what they should do at 18, but at that point. I think at that point, I wasn't like the director that wanted to make featured films. I think I was a director in the sense that I wanted to travel the world, meet people, tell people stories, rather than the director just as the art form, more as a director for the experience of the world and meeting people. And that's why I'm, I've always been more into docs and you know started more in current affairs and then moved into more documentary field so was it always kind of non-scripted and was that from the from the very beginning you were like I like capturing stories and actuality and people and things like that you know at that age when you're like you know, come out of university at 22 you'll take any experience you get offered and I I was part of the TVYP which was television for young people I got part of the scheme at Edinburgh TV Festival right and so I was like one of the I don't know 15 recruits at the TVYP and there I met 15 other people like me that all went to different areas and some did drama and some would tell me about when there was a runner's space so I was a runner on EastEnders and I was a third AD on EastEnders as well they went to Portugal once and because I'm Brazilian speak Portuguese I just said oh, I speak Portuguese and they're like oh we can take you to Portugal and so <laughs> off I went to Portugal and that was amazing because as a third AD you direct background so you actually get to direct so I was directing you know you know, the restaurant scenes where people walk and the waiter walks and people sit down. And so I was doing all that, which at 23 was amazing. And I didn't get to direct the car chase, but because I had to uh, translate. <laughs> so I was the one on the walkie talkie and the director was telling me, you know, what I should say. So I was telling them and the police and, you know, liaising with everything. Yeah. So I did third AD. I was a runner on Shaun of the Dead um, and I looked after the zombies. Wow. Yeah. That must have been fun. I loved it. But I remember getting night buses for about two weeks, I think, to work like at 
just to get on set at 4 30 I had to get a nice night bus in to be there and I remember asking someone how long do I have to be a runner for you know before I can move up and they were like three years and I was like three years um, uh, <laughs> um maybe I'll go into documentaries <laughs> and then I realized I preferred documentaries you know I loved the film sets but the path seemed really far and I was quite impatient yeah I've heard that quite a few times I, mean, I remember going through that thought process myself so do you think there is a, um, you know, for people considering at that stage in their careers, you know, who are listening, do you think there is a kind of, you know, it's a more of a faster track in terms of results or how far you can get and how far you can progress with non-scripted, with, with documentaries than drama? I think in documentaries, you can progress quicker than in film because in film, you know, it depends what you want to be, right? If you want to be the director, maybe going up to third AD, second AD, first AD isn't the route. You know, the better route is to make your own film and then get it into festivals and then go that mm. route. But I think, you know, every route is different, but useful. You learn so much being a runner, a logger, all those, all those things. And, and then, you know, when you're a researcher and an assistant producer, you work with lots of different directors in short periods of time. Mm. So you get a lot of, um, experience working with different directors execs cameramen so that's good that's interesting you, you say that about in those early days of your career because you're essentially just watching someone who's really good at their job day in day out do and, and and understand the complexity and the detail of what they're doing and how they're doing it well isn't it it's that analysis of watching because in documentaries it's usually a real small team so you might just be a team of four of you or three of you you know mm. So once you're an AP, an assistant producer, you can work directly with the director. So it's just you and them wandering around America or wherever you go, you know? So I was an assistant producer. I went to America, I went to India, I went to Peru, you know, it was amazing. I just traveled around, but you work a lot. I mean, all the junior members of, t of every team work so hard, I think, mm. you know, that the directors obviously work very hard, but you know they are they are depending on researchers, APs, everyone to get access to make contributors happy, to make sure everything's working smoothly, so they can concentrate on the editorial and the vision, I suppose, and everyone's kind of doing all these things. But I think it's a really great route because it's good to learn what everyone in your team will end up doing. So that journey going from runner to director what what are we talking here in terms of time I know a lot of it's to do with luck and all that kind of stuff but how long was that for you um so I probably started running at 22 and then I got my first director job at 29 which right. is pretty good I think for a female director but it didn't mean that at 29 every job after that was a director you know once you become a director you reach so you're like a really experienced AP so you're like the top of the AP group and then when you become a director, your first director, you're like at the bottom of this massive group of directors. So, you know, you still have to take other jobs and then you work back and then you get another director job. You know, you're constantly, you know, having to, because every, you know, we need to work to earn. You can't be that picky and wait. You know, it's very lucky people that can just wait three months with a perfect job. And so you don't. So so, you know, you'd take, so sometimes I went back to producing a location producer and then I'd get another director job and then I'd go back to something else and then director job. And now I have just stayed as a director, but, you know, sometimes I'll have a six week gap and I'll do some edit directing or I need, you know, a break and I have development or I had children. So I needed to um, choose jobs that worked with young children, you mm. know, which obviously makes you choose things that you might not normally choose. So you kind of slow down a little bit in that period. And I always think 
you know, for women, if you're like, let's say what, I got my first directing job at 29, which is kind of young in a way, maybe. Mm, yeah. And then within three years of directing, getting experience, I was kind of having a child, you know? So then everything after that, I had to like choose jobs that would work with young kids. And now I feel like I'm back mm. and I can now, when my kids are a little bit older, I can now take the jobs I want to make it work. That's a really interesting subject because it's quite an interesting subject about what's happening in the industry right now. What What is the situation with women as directors? What's the kind of, you know, is it becoming a, a, a better situation? Especially with stuff like, I've worked with a lot of um, fantastic women directors who have had to have that break for kids and then coming back and, and all that kind of stuff. Do you think the industry is changing in a positive way for that? I, I think from my perception, but it might be different from younger female directors coming in, that mm. I feel like it's much better at the moment. It's better because people accept that you can hybrid work. You know, you can work partly from home. People accept that um, that you can work different hours, flexible hours. You know, you don't have to be at the office till 6.30 or mm. 7, you know, which is in my case, I remember like getting stressed every time I had to leave the office at 6 or 6, really, because, you know, if your kid's at nursery, the latest it's going to be is 6 30 you know to yeah. pick them up so you're like running around i think if i you know when i look back i would definitely tell anyone i worked with look if you have to leave early that's fine and then just pick up because the stress of like leaving just on time to rush to a nursery is just not really fair so i'm really glad and and you know pandemic has helped people work from home and i think now dads are working more from home so it's taken you know a bit more of the pressure of you know this rush there's a lot more of a balance can go on so one can when one's working at home they can do the pickups you know all that so that i think that's helped a lot and i think the the we are doc um we are doc women um which is this group of documentary female documentary makers they've been pushing very hard for a 50 50 female male balance in directors and a few companies mm. have signed up to that and a few channels i think are signed up to that so i think that's really great Awesome. So I'm, I'm feeling really positive for female directors. Yeah. And about time as well. For sure. About time. And I think as well, like the difficulties of like, obviously pre pandemic and stuff like that. But with editors, you're kind of you got it a bit easier than directors because you're usually in a post house or a production company or a, a broadcaster and you're in one place for months or weeks or whatever. Whereas with directing, you've got a much more sporadic kind of lifestyle, really. You might be going off filming here and you might be doing this. So it must be much more difficult to plan your life, especially with um, young children. Yeah, I think it is really difficult, but I really think that editor's job is really intense. I really think like, you know, when they come on a job, it's like, 10 weeks and I think it's like the pressure's on them already like everyone talks about deadlines and like sometimes at least when I'm directing I I have a bit of a break I do research and then I go and mm. filming and then I come back so it kind of is varied I feel like the editor's job is intense and they have to deal with everyone's deadlines and everyone wants them to work as hard as possible because you know it's their film you know or you know so I I, I think the director, the editor's job is really intense I really um I think they're one of the, the most hardworking ones in our industry even though they are in a stable place mm. it's intense isn't it you're like working the whole day yeah there's like you're focusing the whole time staring and re-watching and doing and yeah but you know there's so many times I remember like sort of five six years into my into my career especially in docs as well I remember a moment when I was looking at the footage of I can't remember what film I was working on it might have been at the Beeb actually 
at the BBC. But I remember thinking, this looks really complicated, this directing business. I'm not sure I could do this, you know. It's like the amount of things you have to go through from a psychological perspective to get this character to say these things at this time and open up. I'm like, wow, that's like the stars aligning and, to you know, just it's it's inconceivable. Yeah, I was just talking to to an editor today, an editor friend, and we were just saying how labor intensive filmmaking is. Yeah. You know, it takes so much energy from all departments just to like get that beautiful interview set up. You know, you, you know, you have to find the place, everything, everything has to work and the contributor has to arrive and access. And, and in the edit, when I tell people that, you know, an edit, a film, you know, an hour film can take, you know, between 12 and 20 weeks, you know, people that don't work in TV, they're shocked, you know, how long it takes to yeah. create a film. There's so many elements and it's, um, it's very like, I'm coming to the end of a, a year, you know, a year on a project. I'm quite exhausted. Like just energy. You give so much, don't you? you just give your, your soul yeah. to the films. And bang, you crash afterwards. What's your response afterwards? Do you just go on holiday? Do you just sit at home and chill? And what do you do? Go away with the kids? Um, when I didn't have kids, I remember you always get a, you always get a bit ill after you finish a project because your body relaxes and suddenly you're, you're ill because you're like, your body's been holding back, holding back, fighting it. And then you're like, suddenly you sleep. But now, um, with children, uh, you don't really ever relax. And you know, there's <laughs> no. just, there's, I, yeah, you just don't. So, so I'm thinking like, maybe I should take a month off or two, but it's quite busy at the moment. So you, so you have to try and figure out what's the best thing to do well that's that's fascinating stuff your story is really interesting to hear and that sounds like a quite a meteoric rise um as well but i'm interested in the kind of let's let's move on to the sort of creative side what what draws you to a story you know how does that work do you go out and get it what are you approached by broadcasters production companies what is that thing that, that gets you like oh i really want to make this i think i'm quite lucky in the sense that i i do get approached with really interesting stories. So I have stories that I want to develop, but I do get approached with really interesting things. A lot of times they're single films or great series. And so I haven't, I haven't had to spend a lot of time pitching and developing. So I, def- I get called in to direct um, or co-direct or, you know, under a series director or direct. So this one that I'm directing now, I'm a series director and I did one for Netflix recently. I was a director. And what interests me is usually obviously the story, mm. the access and the material that we have. So does that story have loads of archive? What are we going to cut to? How are we going to do it? Um, what's the new creative element? So recently I did something um, for Netflix and there was, there was a um, drama, a drama in it, drama docs. And I hadn't really done that much before. So that for me was brilliant. It was a new thing. Mm. I got to have a a team of 30 people um, for six days on a set and they built an 80 set for me and a 90 set for me. And that was brilliant. So I learned a lot there. So I'm always trying to do different things um, because I'm from Brazil. I love Latin American stories. I love Brazilian stories. And I feel like a lot of stories from Brazil told from a foreign perspective are very much drugs, you know, and so drugs and poverty and you know always trying to find different stories for those countries and you know and a lot more as I get older I feel like the team that calls you to work there or who the team is is Mm. really important because actually you just want to spend time with people you like making films you know 
a lot of the stress in productions comes from managers and I feel like we don't really need that anymore so it's I think a lot I'm also finding a lot of editors tell me they just want to work with people they like Mm -hmm. you know people that they can have a good time with you know the editors that also that won awards already they're like I just want to make good films with good people and you know have an enjoyable time you know Mm. and I think that's you know so the companies that have got a good rep you know they're getting probably good people because that's what we all want we all want to work with people that will help develop you and support you Mm-hmm. you know, with good schedules. So you're not, um, you know, rushed off your feet the whole time. It's interesting, isn't it? Once you get past a certain level and you don't feel that you have to kind of prove yourself or you're climbing that, you know, as you say, you're at the bottom of that pool of um, directors at the bottom and you have to work your way up. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I, I want to have a good time at work. I won't want to put up with, you know, it's the relationships, it's the time, it's the creativity. So that's that whole thing you want to do. You, you really want to feel good and inspired when you go to work. Yeah. And, you know, my recent job, you know, me and the editor, we were just saying how fun it was. Like, you know, it's just, it was just fun, you know, choosing music, finding things, getting things, you know, even if the subject is difficult, it can just be really fun. So that's kind of also really important these days, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you get drawn into a subject, you get approached or you find a story. What happens next then? How do you plan that doc? What happens? What's that process? Because I'm sure lots of people who are listening would love to know to go from kind of inception of idea to the logistics of like, okay, we're going to try and get this done. What, what, is, what happens next? So I think the important thing is, you know, a lot of what you're preparing, if it's interview led, if your documentary is interview led, you know, what are you going to be cutting to what are the visuals if it's archive if there's a lot of archive what you need to do I think is to watch all the archive before you go into those interviews because interviews are always better when you're when you're um planning it with archive when you know what what you need to lead up to set up that archive where are the twists and turns where are you going to have surprises are you going to do it present tense how are you going to tell this story is it going to be more of a thriller these days, it's, you know, it's recently become a thrill. It's like present tense narrative, isn't it? Like how to do this, how to do this. So for example, you might have a police interview and it might be three hours. You might want to decide before you go and do that interview, which bits of the police interview you think you might use in your edit. And you will set up, make the interview, explain it up to that moment in that interview. There might be this police interview where, you know, the footage of the victim or the perpetrator he might explain things too complicated, you know, like a three minute thing to explain something that you need 20 seconds. So you might get your interviewee to summarize it, Mm. you know? So these things I think really help plan and the archive will inform your film. So if your best archive is in a scene, then that that's what you want to lead up to. You know, it doesn't matter if the stories, if the interviewee tells, if there's no pictures for it, you Mm. know, there's, that's, that's what I think I'm always thinking of is, the archive what is the best archive we have and how are we going to use it to the best way we can in this narrative and so I would suggest everyone to watch as much archive as possible before going out to film if you can and think of your questions for that so we, I think I did ages ago I did a film called The Lion Cub from Harrods which was this film about a lion that was bought in Harrods you know by these two Australian guys and the archive was amazing. You know, the archive of them at home with a lion, the archive of them taking it back to Kenya, to the Born Free Foundation. And, you know, all the whole interview was based on the images we had, you know, where they, mm-hmm. they set it up. They, you know, so I think watching all of that is the first thing. 
and then obviously reading as much about the characters and the people and imagining how you want to start the film. You know, how would you like to end the film? Mm-hmm. Obviously this all changes, but it's nice to think about where would you start? How would you end? What's the middle? What's the, not the I hate the word cliffhanger, but the cliffhanger, um, you know, how, how will you keep people there? If it's a series, how will you end each part, each, mm-hmm. you know, each episode, you know, because I think, um, I think we all have to be quite realistic of how long films are, you know, if they're 45 minutes, there's no point trying to build something to a point which might take 80 minutes. You know, I think we have to be more realistic about the time we've got to tell stories just helps. Mm. I think that's really interesting. I mean, especially with like interview technique. I mean, I got that advice before, which is like, you know, if you want to learn how to um, interview, watch loads of raw footage uh, of interview and you see the process. So, do you sit there and literally write a specific order for the questions after you've watched the archive and you plan a kind of, obviously you can go off down rabbit holes and, and stuff like that, but then come back to something. But do you do you go that far into structuring the interview questions? Yeah, I definitely write all my interview questions. Like I, you know, take a day or two to write all the questions. If it's like, I mean, recently I've been doing like series. So sometimes our interviews are like six hours you know, seven hours, eight hours. So I do write the questions. Sometimes we, pr- we prepare videos to show them, to bring them back into the moment, you know, so we'll, it's a lot of preparation goes into all the questions. And I don't stick with the questions. I hard, I try to hardly look at my paper and I always try and write them myself. Obviously, you know, the, the AP or the producer will help write them, but I definitely am, am the one typing them out most of the time. And mm-hmm. people add, because if it's, if I write them, they're in my head and everything. And then I try not to, um, to look at it that much. Um, and it's interesting because I've, during the pandemic, I did lots of remote interviews. So it's like, we're talking now on zoom and I'm looking at you. And if I kept looking at my paper, I would lose you, you know? So yeah. I, I felt like I just had to like speak to my contributor throughout. And I, Usually I have it in my head. So I, and I know the story by heart by that point. So I know what I'm asking and then getting them to repeat, Mm. you know, and I love interviews. Obviously, you know, as a director, you should love interviews. Yeah. If you don't, you're in the wrong business. (laughs) But I love interviews because I, I try not to have too many conversations with the contributor. So I want them to feel like they're telling me for the first time. Right. Yeah. And I am generally curious about how they felt and their thoughts and and so you know most of the time I'll let it like I'll just go with the flow and then sometimes I'll come back or and then the producer might remind me of questions I've missed it's useful to have on these long interviews someone spot checking you Mm -hmm. right so my producer will sit somewhere in the room and he will mark off what I did didn't ask or he'll say look that this sentence wasn't good enough, you know, or so at the end, I know he's got, in this case, my producer's male, um, he's got my back. Yeah. And so, so that's good. So I don't have to worry about missing anything because he's, he's paying attention to that. I'm just having a conversation with the person. What's your kind of idea on like the connection? You know, you, you, we talked about it, you know, a bit earlier, the whole idea of like chameleon, but you have to be a kind of a people reader, don't you, when you're trying to get a, a contributor to open up and stuff like that? Have you got any kind of tried and tested kind of behaviors or techniques that you use to ingratiate yourself? Or how does it work? I, I, you know, it'd be fascinating to, to find out. I mean, I think it's always useful to have spoken to them in advance. Mm. you know, a little bit and to get to know them. And then when they arrive, you're with them. And obviously they have to feel as comfortable as possible, take as many breaks. But in general, I think, 
I think once someone's decided to be interviewed, they're interested to tell their story. And I think if you're genuinely interested in their story mm-hmm. and you show interest, then I think that makes them feel comfortable that you're interested. You know, if they, if if you're looking down at the papers, if you're distracted, if you're not, you know, if you're asking them to repeat stuff the whole time, then I think they get they they get nervous, right? So can you say this again? So you, you, know, you probably wouldn't do that too many times. You know, you might know you haven't got it. You'll come back to it later. The main thing is to really um, just to care, I think. And I always care about hearing their side of the story and what they have to say. And, you know, and obviously I'm trying to get in a way a performance, you know, for them to say it in a way that works. And sometimes you, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes people are they speak slowly or they're older or they're nervous. But in general, I find that most people are, once they get in that spot, they do. If you have the right environment and, you know, you're not interrupting. And sometimes I think it helps to have screens up, you know, mm. that they don't get distracted by someone walking or from, you know, someone changing a card, you know, make them feel it's just you and them. You know, I think that's really useful, you know, or have a screen in front of the camera operator you know if it's a really long one because obviously everyone gets distracted sometimes so I think to make it feel intimate is good Mm. Mm. is useful and dark I suppose sometimes do you do like warm-up questions and stuff like that just to get people in the you know a way of to to get over the nerves yeah like you know you probably do Patty. it's all about you know talk about things they know like what's your background you know how did you become a police officer how do you know like all these stories are interesting and it makes them relax into things i would never go straight into a, a question sometimes it does take like half an hour you know mm. to get into it and there's always a sound issue there's always you know something but i try and um yeah i always do warm-up questions and then we go into it. And then it's like, it's also trying to understand, like when we did a remote interview, trying to understand how many minutes left on a card, you know, so you have a sign with the DOP, they give you a tap when there's like five minutes left. So, you know, you're not going to go into a really important question and then be interrupted, mm. you know, or, you know, that it's when's a good time to stop to change cards. So I think that's quite important because if you start and you're in a really important question and then the cards finish, it's difficult to get that again. Mm. So we always have a, a a five or 10 minute warning with the DOPs when the card's about to finish. That's fascinating. I really love hearing the director's perspective on that. It's really, really interesting. What's that next process then? So if you're going out and shooting coverage, you know, sequential coverage, you know, um, uh, alongside, you know, your archive and stuff like that, are you filming things that are getting triggered by the interview from like connected like oh i need to go and shoot this i need to go and shoot that or is it retrospectively or prospectively what's that kind of process yeah so a lot of the interviews will inform you know what the shots will make all your stories so you know the gvs or where you want them to go or walk you know but when it's actuality you might just be following it but a lot of the times the interviews you do learn from the interviews and that will help you inform you of other of the other shots you need and the things you need to do with them. But hopefully you would have picked most of that up on research calls so right. that you can plan. Because once you're with them during the interview, you're probably going to be shooting quite soon. You've got the whole crew available. And a lot of films are made in these blocks, right? Like three weeks mm. and you go. I mean, the recent one that I've been making, we were very lucky. We had about 50 actuality days, you know, across a year. Wow. Actuality and interview days. So we could pick things up as we went and we were following a true unfolding story. So that's different and less planned, but really, really great as well. So it's really dependent on the film you're making. 
So when you're shooting actuality, are you looking for a monitor or stuff like that? What's that relationship with your DOP? Are they are they are you relying on them for coverage and angles and stuff like that? I don't rely on him. It's just we work together. So right. when when I think we've got the sync, I'll go, okay, let's get a wide. And then I'll then we'll go get a wide. Or then I'll or then I'll help him by saying to the contributor, oh, can you do that again, please? Because I know he wants to get, I don't know, the hand washing the dishes, you know. So I'll I'll be there to help. Obviously, the DOP will also say, oh, can you do that again? Can you do this? Or, or the DOP will just cover it himself, depending. But sometimes he might just need a bit of um, help from me to mm. know when I'm happy that we've got the scene we need. But when it's true actuality, and you've got a good DOP, you really shouldn't have to do anything. They're just like following the action. And that's when it's amazing, right? When you don't have to produce anything, when it's unfolding. Yeah. When do you, do you get a moment inside you and you go like, we've got it, we can move on? Or what? how does that, what's that feeling inside? How do you know you've got it? I think you, you really do know when you're watching something special, you know, when you're filming something, you know, real actuality, it can like, you know, hospital stuff, you know, when there's a true drama, emotions, you know, you, you feel like you're very, um, it's a real privilege when people let you be part of their lives for a these important moments, you know, you really feel that that it's amazing and you just kind of capture it and you and you do know when something's really great. But, you know, like editors always, you know, they always joke with editors when the directors go, oh, but that scene I know was amazing. I know I had that shot. I know. And then the, the editor's like looking, looking, <laughs> can't find it because there are times where you do think <laughs> it's more amazing than it is on the timeline because you you felt everything and you had right a backstory you have a backstory with that character you've been through everything but once it's on the timeline it might not feel that yet right and it's obviously obviously disappointing to the director when it doesn't come across because sometimes it doesn't you know like you know but sometimes it does so you know perception is really interesting like I did this interview and there were there was a DOP the you know another camera operator me and the producer and we both came away from that interview thinking different things of that interviewee of whether they were being truthful or honest or not like mm. all of us had a different perception of that interview mm. and it's all to do with us you know all the things that made us us you know you some people are more skeptical some people believe less some people have trust issues so that all is in play in anything right in any relationship so it's it's interesting so you know, when, when a viewer watches one film, they'll all see it in a different way, right? Mm. And you can't really control that. You know, everyone will just have their own view of it, which is interesting. It's like, yeah, you've got this idea of truth and perception. So you're the person, along with the editor and the DOP, who are like shaping a version of what you think is reality or what you think is close to the, the truth of the story. Yeah, it's like, it's like once I was filming um, a film called Destination Syria, which was about a group of Muslims going into Syria to, um, to deliver aid. And we traveled with them in an ambulance. And I was shooting, wow. traveled with them in an ambulance all the way, like from Bolton to the Turkish-Syria border. And, you know, I'd been with them the whole way I was shooting. And then we had to drop them off at the mm. Syrian border and they would go in. And obviously the Syrian border is a really dangerous place to be. Mm. So you don't want to stay there very long. I just needed the shot of the ambulance. They, they were in an ambulance to deliver the ambulance. And um, a shot of them going in and going through the border or just going through or just having them leave and us going. But my heart was going so fast because 
it was dangerous and I was really sad to see them go. I'd spent 11 days with them. I didn't know what was going to happen to them. But that doesn't really, it didn't, you know, it was a shot of like a car leaving. That emotion that I had didn't really play in the edit because how would it, you know? But for me, I still remember that day of like, you know, letting this ambulance go off and they all came out fine. And we met them four days later. Mm. But you know, like what you feel and how it is visually, that's why you have to create help, you know, that helps you feel those emotions. Like I think in your, in your interview with the, with the Top Gun editor, he was saying about inserts just to create drama, to create emotion that you did feel, but that maybe is not real at the time, but it does help, you know, mm. in terms of all that. So I think, I think that's what filmmakers, we need to be aware. It might feel amazing, but actually you do need to do more to try and reproduce that feeling, be it in the edit or be it when you're filming. Yeah. And that must be just going into those situations again and again and again, experiencing that as a director, I'm, I, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, you learn a lot when you're shooting and being in the edit. And, you know, when you're in the edit, it's actually kind of like as a director, if you've shot it yourself or you've, you know, it, which most of the time you have shot or you've been in charge of all the shooting with the DOP, it's quite painful because there's always stuff that you haven't done or you haven't got, or you could have got better if you'd stayed another hour or if you, you know, you know, so it's, it's quite like you're constantly disappointed at yourself, you know, in the mm -hmm. edit. And obviously I think editors are quite good now at like saying, well, why didn't you get this? Because they kind of know, like, that's not very helpful, you know? <laughs> Yeah, can you go back to the Syrian border and get me a reverse yeah, angle of that ambulance, please? Exactly. But, you know, I think for directors, it is it is a, a quite intense but difficult because you know mm. what you didn't get, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah. And you can't get everything, right? Sometimes you do a really good job and sometimes you're like, oh, why did I rush myself here, you know? And and I think when you're self-shooting, at least you're also more, in, you can just kind of, it's kind of on you, right? Which mm. is Which is good. But I think um, recently I've done a lot more DOP-led, which is great. You can just concentrate on editorial. So you do miss less because you, you're you just on the... But you always miss stuff constantly, constantly. I did one job as an... No, two jobs as an edit director. And it's actually quite free because you didn't shoot it. You weren't the director on site and you're editing all the material people give you. And so you can just do the best you can. And there's no real guilt in the process you know you're just doing the best you can with everything that's been given which is great i loved sume's thoughts on differing perspectives collaboration and creativity in long-form filmmaking and she gives great insight into how high-level directors structure their creative thought process before they actually start working on films during the talk, it really struck me where the similarities, differences and crossovers are in our respective art forms. And she articulated brilliantly what both of our roles must bring to the table and in what way to produce the best result. I never actually heard before how a director had come up through logging footage. And it was amazing to hear the insight she got from simply watching raw footage all day what the directors were asking, their interview techniques, and the real-time output of DOPs. Immensely useful. An inspiring talk with a filmmaker at the top of their game. Don't forget to tune in to the concluding part of Sume's interview on next week's show, where she goes into more depth on the collaborative process in the edit suite 
and drops a whole load more filmmaking wisdom. No episode of Once Upon a Timeline would be complete without a huge shout out to our good friends over at Universal Production Music who supply every single track for the show. If you're sourcing music right now for your projects, go and check out their site. They have over half a million tracks in every conceivable genre, tone, tempo, and mood. Or if you like any of the tracks on this or any other episode of our podcast, just go over to insidetheedit.com and check out this episode's page for links to each and every track for licensing. Don't forget, fellow filmmakers, we are just a week away from the one and only sale we do at Inside the Edit all year round. If you'd like to join the world's only professional level creative editing course, you can do it for half price. Every single membership we have will be 50% off on Black Friday weekend. Tune in next week for the discount promo code. We're a very small company here at Inside the Edit, dear friends, just a few passionate filmmakers trying to spread the word about this beautiful art form of ours. Helping us grow our creative community is really appreciated, so please don't forget to tag us on social and share it with your filmmaking friends. However, if you have 30 seconds to spare, a rate and review on Apple Podcasts is also really, really appreciated. Thank you so much for being part of the Inside the Edit community. Have a great week, dear friends, and don't forget to tune into next week's episode of Once Upon a Timeline for the concluding part of Sume's in-depth discussion on the director's perspective. Stay cool, stay safe, and stay cutting.